What should we talk about? You have something on your mind? Oh, <laughs> too much. <laughs> no. Too much. Yeah. Always. No. Thursday night, um, since I was not there, did you con- con- continue with the creation of? Um, I didn't. Didn't really even get as far as I had lost last uh, <coughs> Sunday, but I did begin to speak about. Approaching the taking the approach of soul creation, soul creation. instead like of just soul negation. <laughs> I would like to have you continue on that if you would please. I, I certainly uh, intend to, and uh, I will. And uh, so, anybody have any thoughts on that particular topic? S O L E or S O U L? What's that? Is it S O L E or S O U L? Uh, well, actually, you know, in, in the deepest analysis, they are the same. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because the, 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 the greatest ill that we suffer is the illusion of separateness. <coughs> and um, the idea of an S-O-U-L is... Uh, is, is a desperate attempt while still clinging to that separateness to find some sort of mm-hmm. consolation. But the only real consolation comes with uh, abandoning the S-O-L-E. <laughs> so, and uh, that's... Uh, were you here last Sunday? No, you weren't here last Sunday. So, if we look at how... Uh, Psychologically and, and philosophically, uh, the self or the soul is identified. Uh, there are certain characteristics that that are implicit assumptions whenever we think or talk about the self or soul, and they are that uh, that it has a characteristic of unity. That there's only one. That I I have only one soul, and you have only one soul. Not that there are many different souls inhabiting each of us. But, uh, the second is uh, the characteristic of uh, sameness uh, or endurance, although often that gets translated into uh, permanence too. We think of it as being eternal or perpetual. But even for those that don't, they still, you know, the, the idea is I am the same self that I always was, and I will continue to be the same self, if not forever, then at least until I die. So that's another thing. And then the third defining characteristic is that myself or soul is somehow distinct from, readily distinguishable from, separate from, and somehow independent of everything else. So those those are sort of the implicit ideas that the mind spontaneously generates and attaches to the idea of uh, self or soul, either one. And so when we look closely at them, we find that, uh, that all of these are without substance. But it's the third that is really, as I said, that's that's the most fundamental problem, is that we perceive ourself as being separate from what is not self. 
And so, you know, in, in order to do a, in order to engage in a process of healthy soul creation, uh, we, we need to distinctly modify that sense of separateness. There's the feeling of separateness, and then there is the product of our cognitive activities and our discursive thought activities and everything that, that create an objective self in the mind. So there's really, there's, there's that deep, inherent, and, and very difficult to transcend sense of separateness and isolation. But we can distinguish that from, and we might just call it the experience of separateness. Uh, we can distinguish that from what happens when, once that's there, we go through this whole process of self-identification and self becomes an object, the object idea of who we are and what we are. And that's, uh, as, as soon as we create that object, uh, it has a lot of immediate consequences. We now have, that object can be uh, attacked or, or demeaned and that produces a very strong reaction. And that object has needs, uh, amongst them is to be protected, but also there is a need, it seems to always need to, to be uh, nourished and expanded and, and so forth. And that's the ego self. And so, in terms, and, and of course, normally for us, the ego self and this inherent sense of separateness are so intertwined that it's difficult to distinguish between them. But uh, one of the most important things that we can work on doing is recognizing the uh, condition, transitory, uh, unreliable, constantly changing nature of this, uh, uh, the totally illusoriness of this objectified ego self. And realize that at its root, all it is, is a mental function that serves a very useful daily purpose you know, I, I like to say it helps us keep our laundry separate from somebody else's. You know, you picture yourself going through the laundry room. Okay, that's my socks. That's not my shirt. <laughs> that sort of thing. This identification of, of who we are, and it helps us to uh, function in the world. But if we realize that, that that's, that's all it is, is a mental function that uh, has has a pragmatic purpose in daily life, but nothing else to it. And realize the, and, and instead, uh, at, at the level of, of, a, of the way that we actually view uh, our body and mind in relation to everybody else is more one of unity and oneness. So, to get to begin getting beyond that, uh, that characteristic of separation or separateness 
that we believe in so deeply and we feel to be uh, the truth that is actually at, at the root of all of our problems. Um, so the soul that we would like to create uh, is one that identifies itself as a part of a whole and not really distinguishable from that whole and that rather than an ego self whose needs are constantly putting us in conflict with other people and with our environment, we're always trying to manipulate the world to meet the needs of the ego self and to protect the ego self and creates this continuing stress and struggle and we're always evaluating the the success or failure of that process and then also uh, inevitably we get into things of uh, evaluating our ego self and have uh, enter into processes of experiencing um, either arrogant and highly egocentric behaviors or we go the other way and begin to experience uh, loss of self-esteem and, and uh, feeling of worthlessness and pointlessness and seeing our, our self as being flawed or at fault. So, um, and when you move, of course, most of us tend to move back and forth between those. You know, sometimes, sometimes we're arrogant and, and uh, our uh, uh, ego is in a place of seeing its own superiority, which is one kind of conceit. And then other times we plunge down to the other end and we see ourselves as inadequate and lacking and inferior and, and less than others. And of course, that's another kind of conceit. So this, this is the problem with identifying self the way that we ordinarily do and having the sense of, of, of separateness and the objectified view of who we are completely intermixed. So what we, it, we can eventually modify both of those. We can see through both of those illusions. But the inherent sense of self is a much, much more deeply embedded. It operates at an unconscious level and it takes a lot longer to get at that. But we can come to recognize the nature of the ego self and have our identification with that fall away much easier. And we can do that through recognizing and coming to a place of understanding and experiencing unity with everything else. And so that's how we overcome the S-O-L-E, is to just begin recognizing that. And there's an intellectual part to it. We can analyze this. Uh, and I think that's really important. It may be more important for some people than others, but I think it's helpful for absolutely everyone to think about what, you know, who they think they are and what that really is composed of 
and, and, and try to identify it and, and try to see if they can find anything that even vaguely resembles a substantial self the way they, they objectify it. And of course, if you think you do, examine it more closely and see what happens. And then also to examine uh, very realistically and very rationally how much sense that makes, especially in terms of what we do know about the world and life and everything else. That's the beginning, I, I think, or it's at least it's, it's a very helpful aspect to getting beyond this attachment to the ego self. It's just to really, through actually having thought about it and examined and looked, to begin to see what an inadequate uh, perception this is and how ungrounded it is. And then the other part is to that, that goes along with this is to just reflect and examine and realize how totally interconnected we are. How how and not just with other human beings or with other living beings, but with absolutely everything that is. And how arbitrary the distinction is between self and other. And even to notice how in our daily lives that uh, imaginary line or membrane that separates self from other expands and contracts and goes out further in that direction and you know shifts around. It's it, it is purely to discover how purely a product of the mind that the whole notion of self and who I am really is. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the qualities of that that experience? We all know that suffering um, is comes from the small sense of self. Can you talk about what's beyond that? Well, what what falls away first, what what we overcome is that attachment to ego self, and really. Uh, the ego self essentially, after a while, just isn't there anymore. There's still the mental function that allows you to sort your laundry and take care of your affairs, but you don't experience that ego self anymore. But you still have the sense of uh, this of a self in in a more profound sense and. Sometimes it's the, the, the true self or the self with a big S or the, you know. There is that experience of being one with everything. As the ego self falls away, what you have, it's replaced by the sense of being at one with everything and being in a place of acceptance with everything. Um, that instead of you see, prior to that, the ego self is really the focal point and the uh, center of reference for all of our activities. But when that falls away and we experience a more unified sense, then um, rather than the well-being of the perceived self, the well-being of the whole 
and to the degree that there's uh, there's a new sort of moral compass. It's no longer based on a, a concept that uh, thou shalt not cause harm to other, but recognizing that we're all the same self, and that the harm that you cause to others is harm that you cause to yourself. And so it ceases to be an ethic in the normal sense, but rather just a logic of behavior. I'm talking about more from the heart. From the heart? Yeah. Can you talk more about uh, how that feels, how... Oh, it feels. <laughs> that's what we're. we're it, all it, it, for. it it feels really good because you see the other people that you see. There's something that we all do anyway. You know, um, we become really close to another person, and we expand our definition of self to include that other person. If we have children, we'll expand the definition of self for uh, for a parent, and especially for mothers, uh, there's hardly a distinction between, you know, the, their personal self and the self, and the idea of self that includes their children. So, from the heart, you start, everybody is like your beloved, everybody is like your children. Every, you know, there's a, the, on the one hand, you know, I'm still separate from you, but on the other hand, we're the same, and and you're in terms of my selfhood, uh, the, the experiences in terms of my selfhood, you're a part of it, the same as a child is to a mother or, or the beloved is. And the same thing with the 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 world. I mean, you know, on a beautiful day like this. Uh, When you feel at one with everything, then your only role is to be the appreciator and the wonder of the beauty of what is. And uh, when things are going very much the other way, there is a sense of acceptance and surrender that even even though you may not be able to as clearly and directly perceive the beauty and wonder of it, you know that even when things are going badly, that it's still perfect in the same sense it is when you're, when you're doing a walking meditation on a beautiful day like today. So, and, and that's actually why there's so much less suffering and pain is because uh, there's less resistance. There's not this distinction between the self and the others and the boundary is this area where everything is going wrong. Because actually that is... I mean, whatever is happening is what's happening, you know. And it's only at the boundary between the perceived self and what's happening that the judgment occurs that oh, this is a beautiful day, or this is a terrible cataclysm that's happening. So that's, and so the more, the more that boundary and distinction dissolves, then the less experience that uh, you have. And the wonderful thing about it is 
that the stress of resistance falls away. But that doesn't mean that the appreciation, the wonder, doesn't fall away. As a matter of fact, it has just the opposite effect. It opens you up to it more. So that instead of, oh yeah, that's nice, and back to the things I'm worried about that are you know, satisfying the needs of this self. Because you see, that's the problem that we mostly have in the world, is uh, the beauty and wonder that's present gets just barely acknowledged, and then we're diving back into, you know, and, and we feel like we have to, because the self is so filled with needs that we don't have more than a moment to spare for the wonder of what it is to be a sentient being in this world. So without that, we are so much more open to the magnificence of what we really are. All we are is a point of consciousness that is an opportunity to know and experience uh, part of this, the limited part of this magnificence that, that is what we occupy. That's what you were getting at. Yeah. Okay. Does have these other dimensions too, as a dimension of morality as well. I started to mention things like that. So, but the key to it, the key to the whole thing, is, and, and it happens gradually by stages, and sometimes you experience it more strongly than others. But it's just, it's really a deep intuitive recognition of what, if you think about it a little bit at all, is incredibly obvious. And that's the thing that is so amazing about it, is it is so obvious. It is so easy to understand, yet it's so difficult to see the world and live from that place. And that's, that's why we have all these practices and everything else to try to get us to the place of know, having the right view, which is basically knowing the way things really are. Yeah. It seems as I think about it that there that there can be no liberation from me and mine without service. That service is absolutely the outgrowth of of of, of relinquishing yeah. Of 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 a of a sense a real strong mm-hmm. ego centered self because service um, involves compassion of giving and if one stays inside one's doors and and even you know just takes care of one's bodily needs and is practicing you know e- egolessness or you know, contemplating that and so on. You can only go so far mm-hmm. without service. That's true. And I'll point out something to you about this. When we deliberately engage in service, as service, what we're doing is we're practicing uh, we're practicing the behavior that corresponds to uh, 
the state of being that we aspire towards. As we, to the degree that we succeed in attaining that state of being, of, uh, of experiencing the unity, the quality of service changes from being something that we deliberately do, conceiving as service, as to being what we naturally do, because there really isn't anything else to do. So, and this is the way with all the practice of the breath. You practice generosity as a deliberate behavior in imitation of the kind of being you wish to become for whom it is just a natural, uh, spontaneous way of being. And likewise, patience, and loving kindness, and compassion. The intentional practice of these is bringing us towards the it's it's one of the ways by which we by which we actually bring ourselves to uh, attain the goal that we're trying to achieve. And so yes, service uh, service is very important. Uh, and the perfection of generosity uh, goes very much into the area of service. Um, you know, superficially, it may be seen as as um, giving material things, uh, giving money, and things like that. But generosity means really uh, freely giving all of those things, any of those things, which uh, are normally the object of your own uh, desires. So. Um, there are times that you need somebody else's time and energy. So you give your time and energy to others wherever you see that same need is present. Um, being the kind of emotional human beings that we are, we need respect, love, acceptance, various kinds of affirmation. And so the practice of generosity also means freely giving that to others. You know, um, learning not to miss the chance of, of telling somebody what a great job they did, or how nice they look today, or whatever it happens to be. You know. So, as you can see, inevitably the practice of generosity means recognizing in others the same needs that you've experienced in yourself and, and freely doing whatever you can to help meet those needs. And that is service. And of course you can go to the slums of Calcutta like uh, Mother Teresa and uh, do it that way or you can remain in the marketplace of Tucson and just practice it at every opportunity you have. Each of us may have our own need for the, 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 the dramatic um, component of the service that we engage in, but nobody in any situation anywhere uh, is lacking in the opportunity to practice generosity and to be of service. In, in all the Dharma talks, that I've heard you give, you know, 
And so it seems like all roads lead to compassion. Yes. Well, you see, compassion is compassion is an inevitable outcome of realizing the truth, which is the illusoriness of the the separateness that we experience. So, uh, true compassion, the deepest compassion, arises uh, in proportion to the degree that we've understood that. But, uh, you know, before we have any real deep understanding and experience of that, there is still a facsimile of compassion that we're all capable of. Because we can all see ourselves in others. And so, by virtue of the fact that we can see ourselves in others, we can respond to others as ourselves. So we all inherently already have the seeds of this compassion present and in a fully operable form, even before we have, uh, even before we've heard anybody mention any of these things that I'm talking about. A struggle that I have is, you said giving someone something like saying that they look nice or that they've done a good job. When someone tells me I look nice, that pulls me into my ego. Yes. When someone tells me I've done a good job, that pulls me into my ego. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't feel they're seeing the true me, the I. They're, mm-hmm. they're seeing the me, which is the, the, the illusion that I'm trying hard to not be bound in myself and mm-hmm. blinded by. Um, so in, 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 a, in a way it feels like it's not a gift when someone acknowledges those things in me because it inadvertently goes to strengthen mm-hmm. the part of me that's interfering with my true contact with myself and with others. It's not how they look, it's not what they do, it's, it's that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to that? I, I, mm-hmm. I have confusion. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, when you are interacting with another person, you don't necessarily know where they're at in terms of this process and, mm-hmm. and their understanding. Um, and if you went through the world saying, well, uh, because I feel this way, the way you just just described, um, I'm not going to compliment anybody else. I'm not going to acknowledge their successes. I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm not going to recognize the positive qualities that they manifest because I'm doing them a favor by uh, not feeding their ego. That wouldn't be very good. No, no, that's no, ob- that's no, really I, obvious. Yeah, I mean it toward me. Yeah, right. I do it to others. Right, yeah, uh, exactly. So uh, so you see, you're doing it to others, and uh, now you don't know, but they may 
be, they may or may not be experiencing the same thing you do. So all that all that you can really do, you see, is is for your is hope that they're doing the same thing which hopefully you are doing yourself, which is practicing mindfulness. So somebody says, you know, uh, to tell you the truth, you are a really good-looking guy. And from the first time that you came into my meditation classes, I thought, you know, that is a very, you know, sleek-looking, handsome. You know, he carries his age well. He, you know, that's that's an interesting man. So I tell you that, and you feel, you feel your ego arise, and if you're mindful, you say, ah, there's the ego, you know, and uh, you recognize that my 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 appearance is it's just due to causes and conditions, and there's nobody in here to take credit for it. So, you know, <laughs> so how should I look at this? Well, it's really nice to know that I'm not a blight on other people's vision. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's what you want to do is practice practice mindfulness. You know, somebody comes up to me and says, "I really liked what you said tonight. It was a great talk." You know, well, instead of, of "Oh, I sure am a good teacher," you know, it's it's like I feel really pleased to know that I was able to speak to yes. something that somebody needed yes. to hear, and it has a positive effect on me. It it energizes and encourages me, you know, uh, and it helps me to. It actually makes me want to try harder to do even better in the future. Mm-hmm. And so, there's no harm done. Right? So if you're, if a person is still in the place of totally being unaware, and they take every compliment as as a boost to their ego and self-esteem, um, you can't you can't really help that. But when they're in that place, to some degree, they need it. I mean, there is there is a common perception that we have that when somebody is manifesting a lot of uh, egocentric, self-centered pride, mm-hmm. that they need to be put down and brought back to reality. But if you think about the times when you manifested that, um, it's not really the truth. The times that you are most solid in yourself, you're not very likely to get into that self-centered, prideful state. Mm-hmm. It's when you're in a state of vulnerability and yeah. doubt, and then something comes along that allows you to be prideful. And so it's like you're holding yourself up, but on this really, really narrow little fragile pole, and the last thing you need is somebody to come along and knock it out from under you. Okay? Which just makes us want to make it stronger anyway. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We just... <laughs> We we react and we react as though it was a physical assault. We start to fight for our lives then, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or a sense of self. Yeah, or a sense mm-hmm. of self. Yeah. So, uh, so just whenever, whenever the world in any form gives you positive feedback, you know, like. 
there's a task you need to accomplish and, and you feel satisfied that I've done a good job. You know, that's as much feedback from the world as when somebody comes along and pays you a compliment verbally. So whenever the world gives you positive feedback, then you just take that in and, and, and convert that energy to uh, continuing to try to be of service. And, Thank you. Contribute to the whole. Thank you. That's very helpful. Anybody else have any comments? Question? Well, I think you were talking about the soul creation last time as as a c- counterpart to uh, our getting the feeling of I don't have any self, I don't have anything, I'm mm-hmm. nothing. There's nothing, you know, the despair yeah. of, of feeling like everything yeah. is empty and there's nothing. I, I think that's what you started out last time to mm-hmm. give us a more positive way of, you know, getting through those times when you feel like, well, what's the use of anything because there's nothing and I'm nothing and, you know, why well, am I alive? That is, uh, yes, that is right. Because our options are we stay completely mired in delusion. Or we confront the truth, we confront the reality uh, that is our existence. And if we all, you know, there is a dark night of the soul, as John of the Cross called it, or the dukkha jnanas, the the knowledges of suffering that is described in ancient Buddhist text called the Visuddhimagga. And there's the stages in the, uh, there's the um, um, uh, the second of the five paths. Uh, I can't remember, I, I believe it's called the stage of heat, but I don't remember. Is anybody uh, sick? The stages of the second path, do you remember what those are? Talking about accumulation, preparation, yeah. seeing. In the path of preparation, there's described a series of stages, and one of them is just, it's this miserable state, the, the same as the, uh, as the knowledge of, of fear, misery, and disgust in the, in the progress of insight, and the same as the dark night of the soul in John of the Cross. It doesn't really matter. I think it's called the stage of heat, but I might be wrong. I'm not. I don't have a good memory for some things. <laughs> but this is what happens when you start to give up your cherished illusions. And, and as they fall away, there's a tendency that to come to into a place of despair. I mean, with the death, with the falling away, which is a kind of death, of, of the ego self, um, 
the you know the sense of unity doesn't immediately rush in to fill the void. And first, there is just that feeling of meaninglessness and, and emptiness, and I'm nothing but this accidental phenomenon that has happened in a meaningless mechanical universe, and uh, I'm just here long enough to suffer, and then I'm gone. And that's a very nihilistic view. As a matter of fact, that is the view called nihilism. And it does lead to, there is a kind of nihilistic philosophy that arises out of that, which basically says, if life is absolutely meaningless, and there's no point, there's no hope, there's no God, there's no soul, then I might as well do whatever I want and make myself as happy as I can in the present. And so this is the philosophy, you know, and I don't mean this in a, a, a gen, generic form. This is a specific philosophies of nihilism. If you look up nihilistic philosophy, this is what you'll find. This is the logical conclusion of this way of thinking and of this discovery is that since everything is meaningless, you create your own meaning. So, you know, what, what the heck? It's all empty, and since it's empty, I'll make it be whatever I want it to be. That's what led to the Third Reich, directly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, That's what leads to all kinds of cases of uh, various kinds of abuse of people. It is, I mean, a lot, you know, the cult spiritual leaders that, that uh, create such scandals because of the suffering they inflict on the people that follow them. They've reached the point of the dark night of the soul, and their logic has led them into the nihilistic philosophy. Well, you know, this is all there is. Everything's empty, then I might as well do whatever I want and be whatever I want and sleep with whoever I want and have as many Mercedes-Benz as I feel like and, you know, everything else, right? So, Rather than trust to go through the dark night of the soul successfully and, and come to the place of the true falling away of the ego self and the place of unification, let's begin with the end in mind. Let's have a real clear idea of what the alternative is. If you give up yourself, what does that mean? Well, if self is, a, is some kind of artificial little boundary that separates self from everything else, when you remove that boundary, you haven't lost anything. You've gained. You've gained everything. Right? And so let's have that in mind from the very beginning. Because otherwise, we're going to come right up to the point of realizing that there's nothing, that, that we become so aware of the nothingness in the middle of that boundary that it, it's. That's what we. That's what we unify with. Um, so that's that's one of the great pitfalls. You can fall into despair. You could fall into. Uh, it's kind of it's an existential angst of seeing everything as meaningless and pointless. And it actually get, it has the potential to give rise to a kind of narcissism. With the dissolution of the boundary between self and other, uh, 
what can happen and sometimes does happen. Instead of the self dissolving into the whole, the self can try to absorb the whole into itself. And therefore, as that boundary dissolves, then you all become nothing but something to serve my needs. The whole world, as a matter of fact, exists only to serve my needs. And it gives rise to a very narcissistic Egocentric. Yeah, Yeah, very egocentric. And, And so it's very good to keep in mind where we're trying to go with this, that we want to come to the place of unification, of unity, of oneness, so, of compassion. So to get to heaven, you have to move through hell. What's that? To get to heaven, you have to move through hell. That's well. That is true. You you know, I in the in the Christian mythos, uh, Jesus died on the cross, descended into hell, hell. and then three days again. And. Um, it's part of the process, and we do, we, we do have to uh, to confront that. In the state the state of unification, which is corresponds to really stream entry in the Buddhist uh, uh, presentation, meaning this is the state where we've overcome the attachment to the ego self, but we still have the sense of of being a separate self. There's still a further stage to move to where through overcoming the vestigial habits of desire and aversion and the attachment to our separate existence, we eventually come to the complete dissolution of that that very sense of being a separate self. And then there's no self at all. That's, that is a condition that is incomprehensible before it has been experienced. And, you know, so uh, we can talk about it, but we have to be careful that we don't try to think that we've understood it. And, if, and the, the problem there is, once again, that if you try to understand that complete falling, the complete and final falling away of the last vestiges of separateness, you're very likely once again to, to be confronted with just nothing but a void and, and, and emptiness, a meaninglessness, and to shy away from it. Because your mind can't conceive of it in any other way. I mean, Quite seriously, can you conceive of your non-existence? Have you ever tried? Most of us. I think most of us have. Anybody that knows that everybody else dies and intellectually concludes that, well, I suppose that's going to happen to me someday, has tried to imagine their own non-existence. And it's a simple fact. You can't. I spend a lot of time trying. I can. It, it's <laughs> different than trying to conceptualize your own death, though. Yeah. It's different than concept, trying to conceptualize your own non-existence. Well, because I have thought of death. Yeah, you can conceptualize death. And, but it and never ends in non-existence. For me. That's right. 
Yeah, and it's a very it's a very beneficial practice to uh, visualize your own death to create a scenario. Okay, I'm dying. This is what's happening. You know, and work yourself through it. But uh, the interesting thing is that we all are going to come to that point of discovering our non-existence inevitably. But uh, we, as long as we are a self, we can't imagine not being. But you don't. But you can get past. It. I mean, that's that's what a, that's what an arhat does. That's what a fully enlightened being does. Is they they are dwelling permanently with every vestige of that sense of separateness. You know, as it said, the the desire for uh, existence and non-existence both is has been uh, overcome. But first, we've got to think about getting past where we're stuck in egocentricity. If we can replace the ego self with a sense of unity, of unification, of oneness, that's enormously rewarding. And then, once we get to that place, the process of purification will continue on its own. So I think that's why let's focus on soul creation, even though we recognize that the soul that we create is not the kind of soul that we've ever imagined ourselves to be or, or, or wish that we would be. Is there a danger in the idea of soul creation of creating just a better sense of self? There, there is, and actually that is a... That's not a bad thing. That's a part of the path. If you create a better sense of self, um, you know, if, if you now recognize that you are a self that has these flaws, these, these faults that impact negatively uh, on other people and on, on yourself, you can imagine becoming a different kind of self who has overcome those flaws. And then at some point, you will be a different kind of self. Now, the danger of using that as just a, a stronger means of uh, uh, attachment to the view of self, that's always going to be there. I mean, that's there right now. You know, if you make more money and buy a fancier car and live in a fancier neighborhood and, you know, you create a better sense of self based on all kinds of inappropriate values, but you can become very attached to it. And you can do the same thing in terms of, you know, uh, look how holy I am. Look how good I am at keeping the precepts. But of those two, which one's preferable? <laughs> and which one are you going to more easily overcome? At least... At least if you're on a valid path and you have an understanding of where that path is leading, mm -hmm. even when you're experiencing your ego attachment to, oh, what a good self I've become because of my spiritual practices, mm -hmm. the path is still telling you that you're going to this place 
you're, you're trying to go to this place of transcending the ego self, of being a, 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 a being of loving kindness and compassion rather than of attachment and separation. Okay. So it's a phase toward the enlightenment. It's a, it's a phase toward it. But any time up to the point of stream entry where you have the actual experience of unification, at any point along the way, there, you are at danger of falling away. There is nothing to keep you from. And you could come to a particular point of feeling very holy and deciding that, you know, that's, that's as far as you want to be. Just as you can, you know, to, to put it back in, in a more ordinary terms, of, of, of basing your sense of self on on uh, the esteem you're held in by your your community and the quantity of material goods and things like that. I mean, people, the greatest danger for somebody who has fame and fortune is that they become trapped by it. And their spiritual progress can be tremendously impeded by that point. So we always say we, we never fully escape from these dangers until we've actually entered the stream. And once you've entered the stream, then uh, there's really no... Uh, uh, you can dally in the eddies at the edge of the stream, that's true. But once you've entered the stream, you're in the stream. Eventually, the processes uh, of, of the spiritual uh, state that you have come to are going to manifest through the progressive erosion of all of the remaining attachments that you have. I found that as I've given up, well, I've told, I've shared with you this year, I've had many losses. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that I find myself drawn to other material attachments in spite mm -hmm. of the fact that I realize how my attachments have interfered in such important ways with my development. Uh, is, is the task just to keep struggling and being aware of, of that pull? Being aware. Um as far as the struggling part, it's maybe it's less of a struggle if you can recognize what's happening, mm -hmm. is that your mind is conditioned. These old habits still, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's the... Old the, habits. Yeah, they're old habits, and they've been repeated over and over and over again. And so they're going to be triggered by the same things, mm -hmm. and, and they'll come up again. But if the awareness is there, that's the whole thing. The awareness wasn't there before. Now the awareness is there. That's the great gift. When the awareness is there, there's the choice. You can either uh, forget what you've learned and succumb once again and further reinforce the old habits and let them begin to take over your behavior. Mm -hmm. Or you can mindfully observe and recognize that, yes, I'm still conditioned that way. That's the way I live my life. But now I know better. But, but 
then doesn't that mean giving up those things? Uh, not necessarily. It entirely depends on how they have come about, uh, what you have to do to sustain them, and what you intend to, what use you intend to make of them. Uh, if the opportunity to acquire material goods or money uh, triggers in you the desire to have these things for their own sake, or that you imagine they're going to be a source of your happiness, uh, then that's that's not a very wholesome approach. On the other hand, though, if you uh, and, and of course the assumption is here that 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 the means by which the, these opportunities arise and whatever you would have to do to take advantage of them uh, doesn't in, really involve any unwholesome behavior. So I mean that's the underlying yeah. assumption. Yeah. If we take that assumption, here is the opportunity, then the most wholesome way to approach this is how can I use this uh, to further my own spiritual goals or to benefit others? And does it have a role to play in that? And what's it going to cost me? What am I going to have to give up in order to have that? Especially what am I going to have to give up in terms of my spiritual practice, the gains I've made in in uh, bringing about a transformation in myself. You know, I, I'm on the path to a, a transpersonal state of being. Um, is this going to cost me in terms of that, or is this going to contribute in terms of that? Mm-hmm. Because if it's going to cost you, it it might not be worth it. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, well then yes, you are going to get that. But it should come from a place of, of that kind of understanding. Once you've committed yourself, truly committed to yourself to a spiritual path, and most of this is only going to be minimally relevant until you make a commitment to a spiritual path. But once you've committed to a path of realization, then that is the light in which everything is evaluated. Somebody comes and offers you a great job with a lot of money. you know, And you say, okay, what effects is this going to have on my practice? What effects is it going to have on my ego attachment? You know, and, and so on down the line. And you decide whether it's worth it or not. Mm-hmm. And it may be or it may not. Uh-huh. If you're not committed to a spiritual life, then you're, you're going to think, well, what's this going to contribute towards my retirement? You know? <laughs> <laughs> or some other thought of that nature. That's the understated, the unstated premise of a lot of this, is that, and uh, this is why the path of uh, renunciation comes first, <laughs> because you have to become, you have to come to that place where you're convinced that no matter how well things turn out for you in terms of the out there, it's never going to really make you happy. That's what renunciation means. Doesn't mean the world sucks. Does not mean that everything in the world is bad. Doesn't mean any of those things. It means, aha, I'm not going to be fooled. No matter how good things get to be out there, 
they're unreliable, and they won't really make me happy, so I'm not going to get sucked in. That's the path of renunciation. Once you have achieved that understanding, then you are clearly committed to the only other alternative, which is personal development along a spiritual path. And then you have a gold standard by which to to evaluate whatever circumstances that you find yourself in and that arise. It's either taking you in the right direction or it's taking you away. <laughs>